0: Welcome to the Mastering the Mind podcast, where we take you through professional elite athletes and coaches stories about how they cope with the psychological demands of competing at elite level. Today, we welcome former New Zealand track cyclist Kirsty Klickenberg to the podcast. Kirsty competed in the women's team pursuit at various world and national championships.
1: Some of Kirsty's main accomplishments include winning bronze at the World Championships in 2017 and 2019 team pursuit event, and silver at the 2018 Commonwealth Games. Kirsty is also an advocate for health, athlete wellbeing and currently is a co-chair of the Athletes' Voice Committee, which is part of Cycling New Zealand. So let's welcome Kirsty to the podcast. Yeah, how are you doing?
2: Yeah, all good. Good morning, for you guys. Yeah, yeah Brian not...
1: Ella. Yeah, Brian right Ella. Yeah, yeah. 8 a.m. Here. What time is it where you are?
2: It's um, 7 p.m.
1: Just settling down then. You had a busy day.
2: Yeah, I was just working today.
1: Yeah. Well, we'll jump straight into it then. Um, A great place we like to start with our guests and listeners to get to know you is to talk us through your journey to date. So, like, who is Kirsty? You know, from growing up to where you are now. Um, If you could give us a brief overview.
2: All right, well, I'm Kirsty. I've um, been competing in sport for about 17 years full time, I guess. And I've recently retired after the Tokyo Olympics. And now um, I'm working in mental health and um, finishing my psychology studies. And I started out my sports career I mean trying every single sport at school and then I committed to rowing for quite a long time and pretty much halfway through my elite career I um, changed to track cycling so yeah.
0: How are the psychology studies going?
2: Good yeah I feel like I've been a student for pretty much forever so I'm really keen to finish one day, but um yeah, it's a long journey.
0: (laughs) Definitely. It must have been tough, like kind of balancing the studies with like obviously your career. Did you kind of find that challenging or were you able to do it obviously part-time, which made it a bit things a bit easier? Or
2: yeah, at the start, um, I did my undergrad degree full time, which was really challenging. I was rowing at the time. Um, but the good thing about rowing is it's quite early in the morning so I'd have the middle of the day to get to class and then the second training usually in the afternoon or evening and then when I started track cycling like the training sessions are during the day so it was really hard to study full-time so I dropped down to um, part-time pretty quickly and so that's part of why it's taken so long I've had lots of study breaks as well and really Intense periods um, when when we'd be overseas a lot or have race after race, I would often um, just have a little break or do some short courses or something. So um, yeah, it's good to mm-hmm. keep the mind occupied outside of sport, though I think.
1: No, it's good. Like <clears throat> on this podcast, we promote a wider identity, uh, so that your sport is not the the only thing that you have within your identity. So if things go wrong in your sport. You know, you've got other things to not fall back on, but these are the things that take your interest also. So it's not as you don't receive as much psychological distress from not performing as well in your sport. Um, so it's definitely good that, you know, you're, you're doing studies on the side as well. And obviously having huge impact now that you are retired, um, working in mental health um just taking it back to the start of your journey you said you was uh trying all sorts of sports um did you have like any inspirations growing up or was it a sporty family that sort of got you into into the sporting world
2: um I didn't have a particularly sporty family my um my dad was my dad was a karate sensei and owned a karate school and so I did that for a while but um yeah i didn't i didn't enjoy it as much as like team sports and hanging up with my friends so i did that for a little while and then um yeah moved on to doing springboard diving for a long time at high school and um pretty much every team sport that was on offer so yeah
0: that's fascinating and then you mentioned obviously you started in rowing competing in rowing, and then you transitioned into track cycling. So talk us through that transition. So what kind of made you transition and how was that for you?
2: Yeah, well, I I started rowing because I really wanted to go to the Olympics Mm. and um, I felt like there weren't really any opportunities to do that in springboard diving. (laughs) So I thought um, maybe I'll try something else. And New Zealand is very good at rowing. So I thought um, it would be good to try a sport that's really well supported and well known in New Zealand. And so um, I started doing that. I started relatively late compared to most rowers, like towards the end of high school. Most people start like early high school here in New Zealand. It's a really popular school sport, but my school didn't have a rowing team. And so I joined a club and, race pardon me race um a lot and then I kind of got to a point where I wasn't really progressing that much and a sports scientist from the gym said to me like I think you'd make a really great track cyclist um you should like give this testing a go and see like if you're any good and I was like oh well I don't really want to stop rowing but it sounds like a good training session like going max (laughs) Mm. in um, every possible measure and so I did that and did really well and they were like oh you could try track cycling we think you'd do well and I I wasn't really ready to give up rowing so I said like I'll do one more competition which was over in Russia and see how we go because if we do really well it'll improve my chances of selection and if we don't then um maybe I'll move on so went over to Russia and we didn't go very well (laughs) and so um I just decided like after we crossed the finish line that I was ready to give cycling a go so as soon as I got home I sold my boat and moved down to a little city at the bottom of New Zealand called Invercargill where the only indoor velodrome was at the time and um Gave it a crack, yeah.
0: Mm. It's quite common in sports for kind of athletes to transition to like one sport to the other. I know it's quite common for sprinters. They usually go into bobsleigh, don't they? Because um, the kind of physical demands are pretty similar, you know, like the, all the power required. So it's interesting to, you know, to kind of hear your experience of, of transitioning to a different sport. Yeah.
1: What were some of the yeah. key things you learned from rowing that you applied to cycling?
2: um they kind of they're quite similar in the in the way like you have to have a really high power output and takes like a lot of discipline um like to be able to push your body kind of to that limit so um it was quite easy to transition in that sense um rowing is very very technical skill like it's a real finesse the like rowing stroke takes 10 years, I think at least to master. Um, Whereas cycling, while there's definitely technical elements, you can, like if you've got really good power output, you can progress quite quickly. And so um, there was definitely some crossover, but um, yeah, I think they were different enough that it was very much a new challenge. With lots and lots of things to learn, which I felt like I learned through my entire career.
0: It's, it's funny at university, so we went to to Loughborough and we uh, studied uh, self control. And um, it, it, like one of the sports that they kind of used to illustrate this this concept is uh, is rowing and track cycling because, like, it's you know p- pushing through pain, you know, um, having to you know really focus your mind on something else to really go through the pain. So. Are those, did you kind of experience that in those two sports? Like the, you know, having to think of something else to push through the pain or or not so much?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, like it, by the time you get towards the end of a rowing race, like the level of pain is absolutely just extreme and mm-hmm. it's full body. Like it's really every, every part of your body is just like screaming in pain. And so I think... I found like I would really just try and concentrate on like what I was doing and um opposed to anything else and whereas cycling like the pain is just located in your legs like your arms and like back and the rest of your body is like in a bit of pain but man like I just never was prepared for how much pain my legs could possibly experience so um yeah, same kind of thing, like in the last few laps of an individual pursuit or a, mm-hmm. um, a big road race or something, just really focusing on um, going in a straight line <laughs> and, yeah. um, and staying like, as relaxed and controlled as possible.
1: Mm. And training sort of leading up to that. Like, are you can't like uh, regularly push into your max to sort of build that that self control to keep going when it becomes tough in the race towards the last couple of laps? Like, how often would you go to 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 max in training?
2: Um, a, quite a lot in track cycling, I guess, because it's just such a um, even higher output sport than probably rowing. Rowing is a rowing race might have been about seven minutes, whereas like a individual pursuit is only three and a half minutes or a team pursuit's only four and a bit minutes. So um, it's even like higher um, power output. And so yeah, we would do like sprint sessions or like one kilometer training sessions and yeah, like you'd just be getting off your bike every single time thinking like I can't do this again. Like I'm absolutely destroyed and then you just gotta get up and do it again.
1: I suppose there's a huge amount of like mental toughness and resilience there. Um, in terms of like psychological characteristics and attributes, you know, what would you say um, uh, most needed for track cycling? You know, what are the most important psychological characteristics you need if you want to be successful?
2: Um, I think somewhat of like a level of grit and determination balanced with just like a passion to really have fun and enjoy the ability to just get out there and race and do your best with your friends um over the years of racing you get to know everyone and all the other international teams and so I think um if you can find ways to really enjoy the enjoyable parts but still have that like grit and determination to push through and do your absolute best I think it's a good balance
0: yeah that's all just going back on like you know pushing through the pain I'm really curious to know what are you telling yourself on the bike to to motivate you to, to push through
2: um yeah I guess in a race like motivation comes easy on race day like yeah. there's something up and grabs and the um all the lights are on bright and The stands are hopefully full, except during COVID, it was pretty quiet. But um, Mm. I think just um, I found it really helpful just to focus on what I was doing and to be able to kind of have some kind of sense of mastery at that process. It was like really um, a rewarding thing to focus on. So like the individual pursuit, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but it's like a three kilometre um track cycling event and i would ha- i would have like there's 12 laps in the women's race i would have like for each lap like one thing that i would focus on and the last few laps would always be a bit blurry but um those are all just like really technical things cuz um it's very much a race of endurance if you go out too hard at the start you'll often not finish very well so this while it's um going as hard as you can towards the end it's it's definitely having that balance of like relaxation control holding a good line relaxing the shoulders and breathing um deeply and um yeah just like having really really strong focus on what you're doing at the exact moment
1: yeah it's I suppose you're focusing on task relevant thoughts which is like a tenant of like pre-performance routines but you're like doing a routine during which is interesting to see um leading up to like competition or like right before you're about to compete do you have like a, a routine that you go through to like put yourself into that like optimal state of where you like to be
2: yeah I'm a really structured like scientifically planned person and so okay. um like I'll have like a packing list of every item that I could possibly need and I'll like methodically check that I've got everything in order mainly because it just stresses me out if I've forgotten something yeah. and so um I'll do that usually the day before like pack my bag and then depending what the race is on the day like I would go through a very similar routine leading up to a race, just so I know I'm fully prepared, and um, then then I can just relax and enjoy the the hype and the pressure in the environment without worrying that I've done enough things to get ready to prepare.
0: Do you feel like if there was one aspect of that kind of preparation that didn't go to plan or you know the way you wanted, do you feel like you you coped with that easily, or did that kind of you know say okay? That hasn't gone right. Like my day isn't gonna go right. Did you, or did you have that kind of psychological flexibility to say, okay, it didn't go right, but it's fine, you know? Or
2: yeah, almost every time something goes wrong, <laughs> especially <laughs> international competitions. Yeah. Like they say the bus is leaving at eleven, and then it doesn't come until eleven thirty. Or I mean, we got to a race in Santiago in Chile South America and they decided that they would sand the velodrome wooden boards the day before and so the entire velodrome was filled with like wood dust and none of us could breathe and so we had like coughs and um but I mean you, you I just roll with it I think we I'll leave enough room in my preparation for something to go wrong Because like I said, there's almost always at least something small. And so um, rather than focusing on what I haven't done or what's been like changed out of my control, I just think, okay, well, this is where I am now. What can I do? What are are the things, control the controllables is like a common phrase Mm. that we use. And um, yeah, I think if you get shaken easily by change in structure, then... um, yeah, you've probably been to very boring races.
0: <laughs> mm. I, th- I think that's quite an important message to promote because I think a lot of athletes love the idea of pre-performance routines and maybe sometimes get too restricted on you know their pre-performance routine. But the reality is, like you just described there, is that things can change. So it's important to, to have that flexibility as well. So it's a bit of a balance, um, I think. So yeah, for any athletes listening.
2: <laughs> yeah, and like for me, I do for like a team pursuit which was my main Mm. race um for the majority of my cycling career um I do two kind of separate warm-ups like I do like a potentiation session early in the morning which is a really hard effort which always feels horrible when you've just woken up and you haven't (laughs) really flushed the legs out um and so because I know I'm less likely to have interruptions to that early morning routine because it's closer to the start of the day. Whereas I know like the closer I get to the race, the more likely there will be a disruption. And so if I've done my potentiation, got that out of the way, and then I can't even warm up, which has happened, (laughs) then I'm like, I've done my main thing and anything else is really just a bonus, I guess. It always does feel nice to warm up but um, I've had races where um, an event before ours has got cancelled and we just I just had to go straight up and race so um, while it's not ideal there's nothing you can do about it so might as well just get on with it and um, still get the most out of what you can do.
1: Yeah for sure you spoke about like a lot of phrases there a lot of psychological skills have you ever actually worked with a sports psychologist?
2: Yeah so um, I, I'm studying psychology, I've studied a fair bit of sports psychology as well and I've worked with lots of different psychologists over the years starting from my rowing days and um, then just changing throughout the years moving around different towns and things.
1: Mm. Yeah. For our listeners like how much would you say you value sports psychology in terms of like attributing towards your performance um like is it as important like so a lot of people uh, wouldn't value psychology as much as let's say physiotherapy and things like that you know where would you put it alongside that
2: um I guess in my experience at the level that I competed to if you by the time you get to that point like everyone's doing the physio everyone's doing the nutrition everyone's doing the training and so the thing that really sets apart the best from the good is having really really good um, pre-race routines good mental adaptability flexibility having um, the ability to be really mindful of the present moment and um, take information on board in in a non-emotional, non-catastrophizing way and be calm and, and relax while giving your max. And so I think, um, yeah, I think sports psychology, especially at the elite level, is really just as important as all the other things because um, – Sports psychology helps you to improve the other things as well. And so, um, like, for example, you can get the best dietitian to give you the best diet plan. But if you don't have psychological skills to adapt to those changes and find ways to um, be motivated to implement them, then it's it's going to be a struggle. So, yeah. And, I well, think you just mentioned but- You need it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. What you just mentioned there is like why I got into sports psychology, you know, I feel like the difference between being good and great is being able to perform when it really matters. And that's what sports psychology helps you do, you know, perform on, on race day when, when it really matters. So, um, yeah, it's definitely so important. Um, just about like uh, track cycling, you know, how important is like team cohesion and communication in this sport? Like, talk us through that a bit for the people who are unfamiliar with the the sport.
2: Yeah, it's, um, track cycling is quite mixed with individual and team events. And because I was in a team event, it it was such a um, fundamental thing to have good communication, not only just in training, but especially on race day, like I don't know if you've watched many team pursuits but almost every pinnacle event some some team falls apart due to lack of communication and so you start with four riders the race is four kilometers but you can finish with three and because you can finish with three one of you can do a lot of work at the start and then pull out at some point um but when teams aren't good at communicating that they might think no one's pulled out yet and they also pull out and all of a sudden there's only two people left and so like it just absolutely turns into um a very stressful situation because the I've observed like a lot of teams don't communicate during the race and it is hard because you're breathing to your max and you have to yell but I think that's something that our team did really well over the years was communicating well and it saved us from a lot of um a lot of disasters i think Mm.
0: it's such an exciting event to to watch i I love the individual pursuit it's it's such like a mind games type of like you know it's it's very tactical um what did you enjoy the most like the individual team would you say
2: oh absolutely the the team pursuit Mm. was definitely my favorite like an individual pursuit is, is fun to like go out there and test yourself against someone else and um but man lining up to these like lining up next to these teammates who I would give anything for is just the best feeling in the world mm. knowing that I'm doing my best for them and they're doing their best for me it's just mm. such a cool feeling
0: so in your in in the helmet, do you have like a how do you communicate? Is it is there like a little microphone system for you guys to hear each other or not even?
2: We just yell.
0: <laughs> really? Okay, yep. that's interesting. Okay, we have
2: very like basic one word phrases that yep. mean something like if you pull out, um, we would yell three like three riders leave Most countries do that, and then we have a couple others that we would use. Um, in different situations and um but yeah it's really just a one-word yell <laughs> and yeah. the coach will try and repeat it back if possible.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Okay, so so just kind of moving on. Um, obviously your story is huge inspiring. Like we read a lot about you and um a few years ago you got diagnosed with endometriosis. I hope I said that right. Um for our listeners, do you think you could kind of shed light on on what this is and how it, how you kind of coped with you know, having it um, throughout your career?
2: Yeah, so endometriosis is a disorder where the lining of that usually grows on the inside of your uterus ends up growing outside and in other areas, and because it's not supposed to, it forms like really painful adhesions and a whole lot of other problems. And so the symptoms of endometriosis are usually things like pain, chronic pelvic pain, heavy bleeding, pain with intercourse, bloating, fatigue. And so, um, yeah, it's it's a really, really horrible disease, but it's extremely common. One in 10 women, around one in 10 women have endometriosis, but it's still in New Zealand and the UK takes an average of about seven or eight years to get a diagnosis which is just crazy um and an average of a, of five to seven different doctors so i mean you'd think with those kind of stats it would be this really rare hard to diagnose elusive thing but um unfortunately it's exceptionally common so yeah. i Like most people with endometriosis didn't know that I had it for a really long time. And it hugely impacted not only my sports career, but just my life, especially towards um, leading up to getting a diagnosis. Um, I was in serious pain and that kind of progressed from middle of high school onwards until I think I was about 20 six-ish when I was diagnosed and and the last couple of years leading up to that was just absolutely horrific I would I would be in so much pain I wouldn't be able to even leave the house without taking significant amounts of painkillers which aren't good for performance and I would find just like the really really high levels of pain fatigues your nervous system a lot so all these pain signals that are coming from your brain um gives you like a really really strong kind of nervous system fatigue kind of the same feeling that you get after doing like a sprint training session where you're like nerves are tired that kind of fatigue and so um yeah it really really negatively impacted the first three quarters of my career I think
0: Mm. yeah that's that's fascinating and also, am I right to say that sometimes you potentially kept it quiet at the start? Um, you, you didn't really want to, to let your coaches know in, in case they decided to drop you perhaps or, you know, it, or you were potentially scared of the reaction of you kind of explaining that you had some pain because at the time you might have not known it was that? Um, was, was that kind of?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like we've just talked about like how to push through pain and how to like be determine and have grit and so those things really contrast to like speaking up and being honest about a painful experience or something that's really hard and so um and especially at the start of my sports career I mean this is 2007 so this is a while ago um maybe even before then there was a lot of stigma about menstruation periods hormones contraception like none of those words were spoken out loud I remember one of my coaches in maybe 2015-ish said to another coach like oh I think she's got a womanly problem (laughs) like I was like just say period just say it (laughs) so um I think that kind of stigma around um like periods and um pain really stopped me from speaking up and and on top of that I'd had doctors tell me that it was normal and so I believed them thinking like oh everyone goes through this um and that's like I'm doing my master's thesis at the moment on athletes with endometriosis and that's a common theme like a lot of all the participants really about like oh maybe this is just what it's like to be a woman maybe everyone's in this much pain and they're all good at hiding it so I better be as well and so um I just battled alone for a really long time
0: mm. yeah you mentioned that uh, you, you're conducting research on it and I think it's such valuable research I'm, I'm really excited to kind of read uh, your piece um when is it when are you expecting to, to kind of finish it <laughs>
2: <sighs> it's been an ongoing thing <laughs> Yeah. um but it i'm hoping to have a, a grade back before the end of the year so mm-hmm. not too much longer
0: feel free to send it over and we'd love to to share <laughs> it and, and read it um just talking about that kind of stigma and you know taboo do you think things are changing in in high level sports right now in, in the world or do you think there's still some work to be done in t- with regards to that
2: yeah i it's significantly improved Mm -hmm. the conversation the narrative around like even women's health and sport has definitely begun I think we've still got a really really long way to go recently one of our most famous New Zealand athletes Lydia Ko who is a professional golfer said something about her period on a TV interview and the reporter just froze like he didn't know what to say um and then it was big news and someone asked me what i thought and i said like it's great that it's something we can talk about but like it shouldn't be news anymore you know um so we're definitely heading in the right direction but i'm impatient i would like to see it go a lot faster
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah hopefully podcasts like this uh, is you know destigmatizing you know these kind of topics so yeah hopefully fingers crossed it goes faster than we than we want to (laughs) Um,
2: yeah and I think like especially men talking about it is significant as well I mean most of the sporting world is dominated by men male coaches male sports scientists and male leadership and so like the onus really is on men to begin the conversation because they're in the positions of leadership so I think um It's great. You guys want to talk about it.
1: It's probably worth clipping up as well and putting that on social media because that'll probably have bigger impacts as well. So we'll definitely look at doing that. Um, Moving on to like um, more of your career as well. So the 2020 Olympics, you know, what was that experience like for you being your first games?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, I, I really wanted to go to the Rio Olympics and I was having all these endometriosis problems that were significantly worsening. And so at the time I didn't even get selected for like the wider squad. And so I was absolutely devastated. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And that really um, motivated me to like seek out more answers. So I went and saw more doctors. And um, then I, I talked to our sports doctor at the time, Dr. Sarah Beeble and she was probably the first person that really listened and was like, we're going to find an answer, you know? And so she referred me to a gynecologist and shortly after I had surgery and treatment for endometriosis. And, um, before then, like I was having really, really good days. Like I felt like I was just as, but I was also having some really, really bad days. Like the fatigue and the pain was like taking a big, toll for me physically and mentally as well because I just I thought like I must be crazy if nothing's wrong with me and this is so hard am I crazy to not be able to cope um and so yeah after after I'd had that treatment I found my training began to um, become a lot more consistent and that gave me a really really good lead in into the Tokyo Olympics I think um from shortly after that, every World Cup we went to, we won a medal, and I um, like won a couple of national titles and Oceania titles, and won two World Champs medals. And so, like the lead into the Tokyo Olympics was just absolutely amazing. Went from race to race, doing really well and improving and going faster and faster. And then we got to the start of 2020. And then COVID happened, and it all kind of just felt like this, high, like high, fizzled out, and there was a lot of uncertainty. And 2020 was the toughest year I think of my entire career. Um, I'm sure like a lot of athletes really struggled with that, but I realized like the thing I love most about cycling tr- and track cycling is racing. And so when all the racing was taken away, I realized like, I don't actually enjoy this that much. As much as I thought I love training, it was really the racing that I was doing it for. And so um, the lead into the Tokyo Olympics was a lot different to many other competition or every other competition that I'd done. And so that was just a whole new challenge, really trying to prepare without really preparing um, by competing. And so the Tokyo Olympics was a very, very strange experience. We were in a satellite village in rural Japan. There was um, just track cyclists staying there Um, and... I mean, it was just very sterile compared to the races that I'd been to before, like the Commonwealth Games was kind of my expectation of what another Games would be like. And so when it was so different, we were all just like, is that it? (laughs) Yeah.
0: I can imagine like all that preparation and yeah. So you guys actually had um, different protocols than COVID protocols was compared to the other athletes on on site then so you were you weren't mixing with other athletes at the olympics then.
2: yeah so um sports like track cycling are often in satellite villages just because it's not usually a velodrome in a city um in a lot of countries but usually what we would do is after we finish competing like join the athlete like the main athlete village and go and cheer on our New Zealand teammates at athletics or any other sports. And so um, those kind of like stereotypical Olympic experiences that I'd imagined, like going to the closing ceremony, going to the athlete village, going to the dining hall with all these wonderful options, like cheering on my New Zealand teammates Mm -hmm. and watching other competitions And having my family there in the crowd, like all of those things were um, obviously not happening because of COVID. And so I guess like it was, I had to really quickly readjust my expectations of what it would be like.
1: I I completely understand. Just about like leading up to it. So obviously, like leading up to normal competition, like you said, you're building up physically physiologically, psychologically, you know, to you're probably feeling 10 out of 10 when you get to competition, you know, you're ready to go, you're optimal. How did you feel entering to this Olympics? Obviously, you haven't trained slightly different. You have to train slightly different, yeah? Uh to to what you normally do. So, like, how did you feel? uh mentally and physiologically like when you got to the Olympics was it 10 out of 10 like optimal or did you feel slightly less
2: well I guess um towards the end of 2020 without having the um kind of variability and training with preparing and tapering for a race and recovering I very quickly got um kind of swept into the trap of burnout and so I at the end of 2020 I was over training I was under recovering I was starting to get mentally depressed because I was turning up to training every day and going really badly like I was getting dropped from my teammates every day for weeks on end and so um I started like losing motivation to train because it I mean, what was the point? I was going so badly. And um, I said to my coaches, like, I really need a break. Like, I can't keep training like this. It's not good for my self-esteem or physically. Like, I'm, I'm not getting any faster doing this. And so I had a bit of a reset for a couple of weeks, just training by myself and kind of taking it more to feel rather than going for, like, number targets and stuff. And then after that, um, it took me a a little while to build back up, but then leading into the games, we had like a race simulation prior to, and I was feeling absolutely my best and like ready to go. And I think that's probably what I was most proud of at the Tokyo Olympics is like feeling like I fully prepared as well as I could, um, even though I had a really negative experience, not long before and so I got onto the start line thinking like yeah I got this like I'm ready and so just to like feel that race head that I get into feeling like authentically myself and um going out and doing my best I was really proud of that in terms of how we actually went in our outcome like they're really two separate things but um I think that was the one thing that I held on to from that experience like I still managed to get myself to a place of confidence and joy and fun and I'm feeling like ready and excited to race so that was a cool experience for me
0: definitely do you feel like this when how you reached this stage of burnout did you feel it was something from internally or was it do you think the environment that you were in that kind of led you to to reach this stage or what do you think caused you to to kind of burn out like this
2: yeah I think probably the main thing was just like a really really long block of training with no um like building up to a race and tapering and then recovering so like usually the year would kind of ebb and flow a lot more and there would be like a big build up with lots of high power stuff and then a race and then a bit of recovery and instead because there wasn't the racing it was just kind of like a really long build which for some of my teammates who are probably more towards the endurance end of the spectrum of a power endurance athlete it went really well for them whereas me like I'm far more towards the sprint end of a track endurance athlete um, I just burnt me out and so um, yeah the the tricky like The tricky thing was is um, I would just have to train that hard to be good enough to compete. And so there's a really fine line between like pushing yourself to your absolute max and having days on end where you feel like you can't get out of bed and you do anyway and you got a VO2 session and you don't know if you're going to be able to do it. And so you just make small goals like I'm going to get through the warm-up and you manage to get through and still achieve some reasonable power numbers and so I'd had lots of periods like that before where I was extremely tired um, but it didn't go to the point where I couldn't recover at all and so I think that was a really good learning for me like there's a tipping point and I went well past that but because I was so tired I just couldn't think clearly like in hindsight I'm like after three Three or four track sessions of getting dropped. I should have thought like, mm, I'm actually a bit tired. Like I should maybe have a couple easier days and see if I recover. But I was too tired to kind of realize until it was really, really progressed into that um, cycle of burnout. I guess. So yeah, really good learning for me.
1: Do you have like um, any tips for like our athlete listeners to like avoid reaching you know this stage of burnout and you know how to best avoid it? W- would it be like taking a couple rest days when things aren't going well, or is there anything else?
2: Yeah, I think when you get to the stage that I got to, a couple of days wasn't enough. Like it, it was a couple of weeks of yeah. of modified training, and so I think um, if you've if you've had like a reasonable build and you haven't had a ridiculous like twenty percent per week increase of load or done something like crazy, if you're kind of training to your normal expected level and you find you're not recovering, um and then you have an easy day and you still don't feel better and you have another easy day and you still don't feel better and you try to perform again and you've gotten worse, I think that's a really good indicator, like when you're healthy and you're training well, you should after a few easy days um, improve or um, be able to do your normal targets but like I wasn't even hitting my numbers on an endurance ride so I think it it sounds really obvious um, and I've had periods like that before where there's been the odd endurance ride where I'm just too fatigued and I'm not gonna be able to hit the numbers but then after a few easy days I'm kind of ready to go again and so i think it's really important to to think objectively or maybe ask someone else to have a look at what you're up to and say like hey i've had seven bad sessions in a row like what should i do
0: <laughs> yeah so that kind of social support system is is key for you then yeah,
2: yeah. Okay.
0: so Moving on, so after the Olympics, you kind of took the decision to you know, step away from competing high level and decided to retire. So, how was this kind of process for you, this uh, retirement process? I'm seeing that you're you have a lot of puppies on your on your social media page, so <laughs> it seems to be that you're enjoying the retirement period. It's, how's that going?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll be really honest; like, it was very very hard. Um, when we got to the airport to depart Japan we found out that our teammate and friend Olivia Podmore had um, died of suspected suicide and so it like going to get on a plane after hearing that news and we were going into two weeks managed isolation and quarantine in a hotel all in individual rooms like it was just the most agonizing feeling like there's just no way You're putting me into a hotel for two weeks by myself. Like this is not okay. And so um I requested to share a room with a really long, long, really long term friend of mine, Sarah Walker, and um went to do a few days apart to like get the COVID test done at the start, but they let us open our internal neighboring doors after a couple days. And I just felt like I would I don't know what I would have done if they didn't let us do that it was it was a really really dark time for me and I think I'm very much an extrovert and I get energy from being around people and so I think I found it um, a huge challenge is having that much time to myself and like I spiraled downwards very quickly into probably depression like I would stay up all night because I didn't want to go to sleep and then I would sleep all day and I wouldn't eat and like I wasn't doing any of my thesis <laughs> and so and my phone would ring and I just wouldn't answer like I just I just um yeah very quickly like struggled to process what was going on and so the day that they let us out of there felt like just the most liberating thing except like then we went into like a four or six week lockdown <laughs> so I'm very glad to go home but um, Found it also really hard just to go into another quarantine, basically. Um, But, like, much more comforting having my husband there. so. Um, So, that was the start. No closing ceremony, no celebration, no team party, no debrief, like, no group things no school visits or like all of these things that we usually do after major competitions all of those kind of like got cancelled and then I remember getting a letter in the post saying like congratulations you're an Olympian here's your New Zealand Olympian number and I was like oh my god I'm I'm an Olympian like I didn't really feel it I think because a lot of the experiences that I associated with the Olympics like getting a photo of the Olympic rings and things like that It, I don't know it just kind of felt like a like a quieter world cup <laughs> and so um, yeah it was kind of a wake-up call to like get this letter and be like you're actually an Olympian even though I knew I'd just been to the Olympics but um, it was a weird realization I guess so That was the start of retirement it really sucked it was really really hard and then um, yeah i i didn't really know what to do with myself so i just started applying for a couple jobs because i thought like i'm doing my thesis full-time but like it's driving me crazy i need to get out of the house and so not too long after i started a job working in mental health with children adolescents Five to 18 year olds doing um, mental health assessments which has just been like the coolest most fulfilling most quick learning um, experience job that I could have hoped for at the time and so that gave me like a bit more structure and a reason to like get up away from my thesis and like get out and um, be in an environment with other people who work in mental health and so I think yeah that's when I started to kind of feel some of the enjoyments of retirement that I was really looking forward to and started feeling mentally a lot better and managed to like get out and see my friends and family and go for lots more dog walks and things like that so yeah it, it was definitely a journey it still is I think it's it's the biggest life transition you can imagine. You go from this ext- like extremely supported environment where you hear from your staff every single day to just like radio silence. It's really weird. So yeah.
0: What has been the key factor that's kind of helped you through this transition period? would you say?
2: Um I really want to be a registered psychologist and so I've been motivated enough to study while I've been racing and um, I think knowing that I've got like a life outside of sport to look forward to has been really grounding for me. Um, I think every athlete should consider some kind of dual career if possible Um, and yeah I think while i found like the transition out of sport really hard i think i'd i'd spent a lot of time reflecting during sport and especially from the transition from rowing reflecting on like my identity because i thought like who am i like i'm a rower and as soon as i left rowing i was like i was never a rower i just did rowing and mm-hmm. so from the day that I kind of went into cycling, I was like, I do cycling, I can pen in cycling, but I'm not a cyclist. I would never say like oh, I'm a cyclist, um, because it kind of sounds a bit geeky as well. But <laughs> <laughs> like, um, I tried intentionally, like, never to attach like my identity and self worth to the sport, and so I think that probably made my transition out of sport um a bit more enjoyable. I, I feel like I'm still just me and I talked about like at the Olympics walking up to the start line feeling like I was my authentic self and that wasn't because I was like authentically a cyclist it was because like I was living my values and I think I'm trying to still apply that outside of sport as well so yeah. the the day-to-day has changed but it hasn't changed who I am
1: it's like what I discussed at the start, you know, promoting that wider identity is, like, so important for athletes, I feel. Um, I mean, I can't believe how much of a journey you've been on since, I mean, what was it, like, last year? It's been a, it's been a crazy journey for you. Um, in terms of, like, what's next for you, you know, what do you hope to achieve now, now that you're out of sport, you know? What, what are the next steps for you?
2: Um. Yeah, I really want to complete my studies and start, working and practicing as a registered psychologist and um I think like I'm really passionate about psychology in general because I I have found it so helpful myself and I've seen people's lives really change from having good psychological treatment and care and so um it's something I'm super passionate about and really um yeah really like enjoying working in the field already but excited to um kind of have the opportunities for more experiences in different environments that kind of comes with being registered so um yeah
1: okay. what is the uh, accreditation process over there because obviously in uk we have to do uh, obviously undergrad a master's and then we have to do two years training uh, under supervision so like, what's the process over
2: there? Yeah it's pretty much the same except some universities so I think there's six universities in New Zealand that you can do uh, psychology registration with and they're all between two and three years so similar to the UK and then you choose a scope of practice like general or clinical or behavioral and then that kind of depends what scope you pick what program you'll do so yeah
0: what scope will will have you picked uh, will we will you pick do you think you're going to work with athletes or just maybe like the general population or
2: yeah i mean i to and fro on this a long time like at the start of my study i really didn't want to do clinical psychology because The university I was at at the time was just like a really grades focused and like the clinical program was just like, it just sounded like this competition of who can be the smartest, which I was not into. And so if I got a good mark on an assignment, everyone would be like, are you doing clinical? Like, are you going to do the clinical program? And it just really put me off. And so I thought, like I want to do organizational, industrial psych or sports psychology or like positive psychology. Um, but the more I've progressed in my career and like, um, having experiences with people around me with really poor mental health or really severe, um, mental health disorders, the more I've wanted to get a good foundation in clinical psych and, um, be able to use that to move into other scopes long-term. And so, um. I don't know what it's like in the UK, but getting into the clinical program is about as hard as going to the Olympics. So um, I didn't get into the program last year, but I'm really trying to put my best foot forward to be able to apply for the program for next year. So, um, I mean, it take, it often takes people quite a long time to get accepted into the program because there's very few spots. I think there's like 10 or 12. Wow. And so yeah, um, Having said that, like, if I don't get in for a couple of tries, like, I might go down the general scope path and not completely fixed in my pathway just yet.
1: Yeah. No, but, like, honestly, we wish you all the best uh, on that journey. It's super exciting, um, you know, going through all that process. Uh, we're, We're obviously doing it now as well. We're both in training. So, yeah, super exciting to get the journey going. Um, in terms of like all the questions we had for you you know they were all the questions it took us nicely up to an hour so it was honestly a class conversation Um, normally at this stage I give you like an opportunity to shout anything out that you've got going on or if there's anything you want to say all the links to your live social media and that'll be in the description of the youtube video but if there's anything you want to say
2: um thanks for having me you guys are awesome
1: (laughs) okay (laughs) Yeah, no, um, it was class chatting to you. Thanks so much for sharing some time with us. Um, so I'll smash this ad try on right now. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you could please share this with your friends or someone you would feel will benefit from it. Most importantly, like, subscribe, comment down below any questions or guests you'd like us to get on in the future. Also, go follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Links will be in the description of the YouTube video or find us at Mastering the Mind podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.